You may be seated. Let's open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, Jonathan Carnell and I have the same first name. But more important than that, we have the same spirit. He had no idea how I wanted to open this assembly, this sermon, and the next sermon. But he's about to find out. He doesn't know that on my outline it says, Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5 and 6, which he just quoted in his prayer, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, and 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And I like confirmations like that of the Holy Spirit directing our minds and thoughts together. Amen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and the last two verses of it, we are in the midst of the 21-verse prophecy and warning of the time in which we live when Christians would depart from the faith and be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, would no longer endure sound doctrine but would heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they would turn their ears away from the truth and be turned into fables. It's a fabulous 21-verse prophecy. I believe it's the most important prophecy in the Bible for us because it directly impacts our lives and we see it and its fulfillment around us every day. The last two verses of 2 Timothy 3, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. The Bible is able to make the minister of God perfect and truly furnished unto all good works. Every good work that God wants you to do is found in the Bible. It's not found outside the Bible. And if a man will just preach the Word of God and ridicule or condemn everything outside the Bible, then he's preaching faithfully. Because it's God's Word that was given to the man of God to preach. And so it says in verse 2 of the next chapter, preach the Word. And we don't want to preach anything else but the Word of God. We don't want to preach opinions. We don't want to preach men's ideas. We don't want to preach fads. We don't want to preach cultural trends. We want to preach God's Word. All Scripture is given. God inspired it. God breathed it. God gave the words to men. They wrote those words down. Those words are profitable for various aspects of instruction, reproof, correction, and righteousness. That I can give you everything you need for your souls. Look at Matthew chapter 28. We don't want to come short of Scripture, and we don't want to go beyond Scripture. Matthew chapter 28. God inspired Scripture. So we want to utilize every inspired word that we find there, and we don't want to add to his words lest we be found liars. Words that you have already heard this morning. (laughs) Matthew 28, verse 19, the last two verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. We just have that mentioned to us in the fact that believer's baptism is what is taught in the Bible, that teaching takes place first, then believing takes place next, and baptism follows both. So we believe in believer's baptism, and we hold to believer's baptism, and we hate all the harlot daughters of Rome and their doctrine. 95% of all who claim to be Christians are sprinkled or poured upon. It's aspersion or sprinkling as infants. Contrary to the Word of God, one of the simplest doctrines in the Bible, 95% of the 2.2 billion people on earth who claim to be Christians can't even get the doctrine of baptism right. right. But we get it right here in Matthew 28, 19. Teach 
believe and baptize. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. God's teachers are to teach God's people, those that are baptized, to observe all things. That means they can't leave any out whatsoever Jesus commanded them. That means they can't add any to it because it's got to be what Jesus commanded. We don't add to or take away from God's Word that's found in other places. The Bible opens with it in the book of Deuteronomy. The Bible closes with it in the last six verses of the 22nd chapter of Revelation. More on that in the second assembly. I have an unfortunate, but I hope profitable, opportunity with you today to finish, or at least to tithe, or at least to do partial justice to a long list and table of matters of liberty, and to lay them before you and to remind you as we go through them that God does not care about these things. And my purpose is not to change your liberty. No matter how I sound on any particular matter of liberty, my purpose isn't to change your position on that matter of liberty unless it's involving sin. It's to teach you to allow others to have their liberty. Because that's what the doctrine of Christian liberty is in the Bible. It's not a doctrine to free up men as much as it is to restrain men for the benefit of others. And I want you to keep that in mind as we go through some of these issues. Some of them are going to be hilarious. Some of these are embarrassing to me to mention a pulpit of God. But they're necessary because I've seen, heard, and found Christians to divide over them, which is just ridiculous. You know, we've, we saw some ridiculousness of those who make idols of wood and silver and gold from our brother Colin in Psalm 115 and Isaiah 44. But we've also seen ridiculousness and folly in the house of God by people getting all worked up about things God doesn't care about. And so let us consider some of them. I basically ended last Lord's Day with firearms. You know, there are Quakers, Mennonites, and Amish, and others that will not own a firearm because of its connection to violence. But those things are matters of Christian liberty. Yet none of us should ever use any firearm or knife or club or fist or teeth for violence either. Because the Lord hateth those that love violence. Some can only think of the risk to children. Others can only think of the means of protection that firearms provide. Some say it shows a lack of faith in God to have a firearm, and others say it shows faith by using God's means. So there we end up in a conflict. Now which side are you on? It doesn't matter which side you're on, as long as you allow everyone else in the church to be on the other side. And and you're cheerful about allowing those in the church to be on the other side of firearms. We are not Quakers, Mennonites, or Amish by any stretch of the imagination. You know, then I dealt with fortune cookies, and I'll go right past that because I've already mentioned it. What about gym memberships? We're talking about matters of liberty. I've got a long alphabetical list here that I'm going to try to get through, a number of them to remind you of things that cause conflicts in consciences. Gym memberships. No one else may think this is questionable, but wise men know that great temptations can abound in a gym. This issue of Christian liberty is similar to the beach vacation issue that I dealt with earlier in the last couple of weeks. There are single-sex gyms. There are sweatshops that girls don't like to go to. 
And there are other variations that make each gym unique, which makes each decision unique, which makes each person unique in choosing whether they're going to go to a gym or not. It is a matter of Christian liberty. However, it's a matter of Christian liberty like beach vacations that you ought to use very wisely lest you sin by making a provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Christian liberty only goes so far as you're not going to sin or be tempted to sin and that you're not going to put a stumbling block of iniquity before your own feet. There are also gyms with different schedules, different clientele, dress codes, music, atmosphere, and emphasis. And you ought to consider those things before you pick a gym. Any gym is not your right. Your responsibility is to please God in everything you do. Whether therefore we eat or drink or whatsoever we do, we should do all to the glory of God. Amen. And that passage in 1 Corinthians 10.31 goes on to say that we don't want to give offense. In addition to giving God glory, we don't want to give offense to the Jew, to the Gentile, or to the church of God. But we want to conduct ourselves in such a way that others might be converted by our example. Like so many other issues, there are dangers associated with these choices, but they are liberties. But you should not endanger your soul by subjecting yourself to a liberty you cannot justify and do to the glory of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks. Colossians three sixteen and 17 teaches us that. Now see, I told you when I started, I'm not going to deal with these at length. Could I go another 15 minutes on gyms? Yes, but I'm not going to. It's a matter of liberty. But those of you that exercise the liberty, you better be careful. Those of you that don't exercise the liberty, you better allow those that do to use it. And those that do use this as a liberty should not despise or judge those that don't. Their conscience may be different in the matter. Their conscience may be better than yours in the matter. Their conscience may be weaker than yours in the matter. It doesn't matter. All that matters is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Can you violate righteousness in a gym? Yes, you can. So the warning to be careful. Shapely women in spandex is a temptation to most men. And the part of men that aren't in the most may have another problem that's worse. Hair length. Can a woman cut her hair? Can a man have hair over his ears? Can he tuck his long hair behind his ears? What is long or short hair? Some, like Pentecostal holiness churches, forbid a woman from ever cutting her hair. How many of you have ever run into one of those? A woman cannot ever cut her hair. Where is that found in the Bible? Where is it found in the Bible? It's not found in the Bible. A woman must have long hair and a man must have short hair by Scripture because it teaches so in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 14 through 16. It's a shame for a man to have long hair. And a woman's long hair is given her for a covering. She ought to have long hair. It's, a, it's, it's feminine. It shows her to be a woman. And it's required in God's Word for a covering for her. Her hair should be longer than a man's. And in this church, we want the hair of the men and the women to be different enough that anyone that walks in here can easily see that we have men and women and we're not a unisex church. You'd be surprised at what goes on today and you'd be surprised at the venom that I get forever mentioning the, the length of hair in a proverb commentary or anything else on our website. The definition of what is unacceptable will be left up to the pastor like other gray areas. Like... How many services can a person miss before they're guilty of forsaking the assemblies? 
Like, how many earrings does a man have to wear before he's considered effeminate? Like, how long is a man's hair before it's effeminate? Like, how short is a woman's hair before it's masculine? And it violates the Scriptures. Why would either sex want to get close to the line or be contentious about this subject? You know, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven sixteen said, we, we don't allow contention about this matter in the churches of Jesus Christ. And men shouldn't contend about it. I want to ask you this. Will you still love a woman that cuts a beautiful head of hair in half for her husband because he's foolish enough to ask her to do it? Oh, I just gave away my position on that liberty. Will you still love her? I hope you can laugh with me when I just said what I said. Will you still love her? Even if you can't grow your hair and she's got a beautiful head of hair and she cuts it in half for her husband, are you still going to love her? You know, we're going to be women and we're going to be men in this church. And we're going to look like it. And beyond that, we're going to practice righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Let me remind you again that I went to the world's most unusual university in this city for a year. And every day when I went to chapel, there'd be men standing on both sides of the door checking to make sure that our hair was not touching our, the tops of our ears. And I did that for a year, and then I went back to Michigan and after a few years returned here as a pastor. I took my, let's see, it was 1984, I took my seven-year-old daughter to the Bob Jones University bookstore. And she knew all about the rules that I'd been subject to while going there. And as we went through the bookstore, she tugged on my arm and said, Daddy, didn't you tell me that you couldn't have hair touching your ears? Look at the pictures of Jesus they're selling in here. He's got hair down in the middle of his back. 1984, I was 27 years old and I had a seven-year-old daughter. I just shook my head. Unbelievable. Never crossed my mind. Never crossed my mind while I was there. Never crossed my mind. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings, God hath ordained strength. Right. And that was, that was just a tender moment. I appreciated that so much. She saw right through the hypocrisy of it all. We don't want to be hypocrites about these matters. That's why we don't believe in pictures with Jesus with long hair. That's a Roman Catholic, satanic, devilish caricature of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. He never had hair looking like a John Lennon or Charles Manson. He wasn't any hermaphrodite. He was a man. He was a carpenter. He, he didn't let his hair get caught in a table saw. Are you out of your minds? That's a Roman Catholic picture of Jesus you have. And you ought to divorce it out of your heads. How about hairstyles? Listen, Christian liberty allows you to be stupid and wear unconventional hairstyles within modesty limits. As long as you're modest and as long as you're looking feminine, as long as you're looking masculine, God doesn't really care how you do your hair. Men's hair must not cover the parts of the head that it doesn't cover when you're born. A woman's hair must cover and be feminine. Parts of the head that are not covered by her hair when she's born. A combination of the neck, sides, back of the head, sides, and forehead, some combination of that that shows that she is a woman with a covering. You may have strong opinions about style, but they're worthless opinions. Love everyone else in here. You know, if someone comes in here with a mohawk, it's going to be hard for us all to commune with them. But can we prove it wrong from a Bible? 
No, we can't. But just remember that I said it'd be hard for all of us. I hope that you can all laugh at some of these things. They're not laughable to me, but I'm trying to laugh with you because I have strong opinions as well. Hair color. Is it okay for a Christian, either a man or a woman, to deceive others by coloring their hair? If you condemn hair coloring, you better oppose makeup, braces, tanning, and manicures just as well. Will you love those that at 70 have vibrant hair color? Will you love those at 30 with foolish gray? Everybody laugh now. Hair coloring may violate modesty, appearance, offense, or association by a foolish extreme, but ordinarily it doesn't have to do that at all. God has not called us to see how ugly we can be for Him, but rather to avoid ungodliness. And so I want us to be thinking about I'm through with this subject today. It makes me sick. But the number of things that people will get upset about and irritated about is mind-boggling and very irritating. God doesn't care. God wants us to look as good as we can within the limitations of modesty. Health foods. Some are intensely serious in their desire for organic food items against inorganic food items. If pressed, some of them might fall back on the body being the temple of the Holy Ghost from 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. They have strong opinions against junk food and other modern convenience foods. The funny thing is that God's nearly entirely silent about what constitutes healthy eating in the Bible. Right. You say, well, it's just common sense. Is it really? Is it really? Have you ever done a study on how people live to be 70, 80, and 80 years of age on fat back for breakfast every single morning with eggs and milk heavy with cream? You say, well, it was organic. Okay, you had organic fat back. Is that what you're eating every day? There's nothing wrong. Listen, I'm not trying to change liberties. If you love organic food and you like paying three times as much, go for it. If you want organic apples from Whole Foods, instead of buying the gassed, treated, painted, pesticided apples at Bilo, it is your choice and more power to you. Uh, seriously. Right. But will you allow everyone else in here to eat apple bits and call it apples? Apple bits is a cereal that's loaded with sugar and processed whatever. Sawdust probably that's in it. <laughs> this is Liberty. Because you know what we're going to stick together on? Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. You know what we're going to get excited about is Romans 15 and verse 8. And what follows in Romans 15 about us Gentiles being grafted in to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what's coming next Sunday when we have the Lord's Supper and show our common union around Him. These things just irritate people and their differences, the, the opinions they get. You know, they'll go online and read something about organic apples and gassed apples and apples that arrive in semi-trucks that are basically preserved and could go into a museum and they'll just go on and on about how dangerous it is for your health. And, you know, the Lord didn't say a word about it. Listen, there are people that have smoked cigarettes all their lives and live into their 90s. Yes, I know what statistics teach. But you know, how, how do you know I'm not a, one of those statistical exceptions that can eat alphabets every day of my life and make it to 70? You say, well, I want to make it to 90, but I don't. <laughs> Why would I want to make it to 90 if I'm not productive for the Lord's sake between 70 and 90? Right. 
When David died at 70 and couldn't even keep his own body heat, the Bible says he died in a good old age full of days. I'm not making fun of anyone that's over 70. I am exhorting everyone that's over 70 to make sure that to some degree they're still productive with their lives because why are you alive? We want to be serving the Lord. If these organic food lovers argue from actuarial science, it better be applied consistently to all other things as well. You know, I know that sugar and high fructose corn syrup and artificial sweeteners and many other things are a relative danger. There's something that we ought to consider, but you know what? I'm, I'm not going to preach it. And you say, well, you're preaching? No, I'm not. I just told you to eat alphabets. The American diet has changed. The life expectancy hasn't. You say, but there's more diabetes. Yes, there is. And there's more insulin. And they still live to the same age. You know, how, how old was David when he died? Seventy. How old did Moses say that a man should live ordinarily? About 75 years of age, three score years and ten, and if by reason of strength he lives to be 80, his years are full of trouble and pain. Psalm chapter 90, verses 10 through 12. Right. Do vegetarians live longer than meat eaters? Possibly. But they don't have as much fun. <laughs> I'm serious. Amen. The Bible says meat is good. Right. God did not come down and talk with Abraham for a salad. And God did not come down and talk with Abraham for granola. I, I promise you that. Nowhere in the Bible is there feasting done with granola or salads. They don't have as much fun. I mean, if you want to sit around and eat vegetables every day and, only, and be a vegetarian for some health reason, that is your liberty. You may not be a vegetarian for religious reasons because that is heresy. Right. I hope every... These things just drive me crazy because I'm, I'm not dealing them with, with them at length, but I hope it's enough for you. And I'm not crazy. I'm just frustrated, and I want to finish this. And I'm not making very much progress because we're only in the H's. <laughs> Hobbies. Any hobby must be considered on its own merits and other factors for acceptability to God. A man does not need hobbies, and a man may have several, ho several hobbies. It's your liberty. Redeeming the time is not a liberty, because it says so in the Bible. Neither is showing mercy to yourself a liberty. It's a commandment. Look at Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 17. You know, I'm not turning you to very many scriptures, because there's not very many scriptures about alphabets. It's to be understood that these things are outside of scripture. That's why I'm preaching them, because they're outside of scripture. Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 17, the merciful man doeth good to his own soul. So if there's something that helps you relax and, and uh, distracts your mind from the difficulties of your job or whatever purpose you use in it, the merciful man doeth good to his own soul. Proverbs 11 and verse 17. And so we want to practice that. That's not a liberty. You may do that. Some people find it relaxing to work. Because they measure their lives by productivity and getting things done, and so they find comfort there. And we don't fault them unless we see that it's leading to some sin. Right. Where a man's looking like he's greedy or covetous, which is why he works extra hours. I've already mentioned to you hotel ownership. Would you all be able to commune with someone in this church that owned a hotel? For your information, you already have. But would you be able to do that? 
You know, adultery and fornication occur at hotels. Could you handle a person that owns a hotel where half the clients are committing adultery or fornication? Does that bother you? The adultery and fornication should bother us. But a man owning a hotel is a legitimate business enterprise. What happens in rental homes that landlords own? Is everything that goes on in a rental home pleasing to God? Or does sin go on there? He's providing a legitimate place for people to stay, and so are hotel owners and operators. Hours at work. Some men must push themselves to work 40 hours a week for various weak factors. If one man wants to work 40 on the job and another 72, they both should do it under the Lord. Not enough work results in the sin of slothfulness. Too much work is usually a function of covetousness and greediness. So we want to steer between those errors and we want to do it to the Lord and we're all going to give an account. Are you remembering Romans 14? I had you read it again last night because we're all going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of our lives as to why you worked the number of hours that you did. Were you slothful or were you greedy? Hunting and fishing. Does it bother you that some in this church love to get away from it all with a gun or reel? It's a monstrous waste of time. Does it bother you? I didn't say it was a sin. Because I just taught you that you could waste some time with hobbies if it was for some good end towards your own soul. Do you realize that God intentionally did not tell us what New New Testament Christians do in their spare time? There is nothing. Do you know what that means? Liberty is what it means. Thank you, Lord. Will you commune with a man if you see pictures of him rejoicing after killing Bambi? Will you love a man that works 40 hours a week and fishes 10 hours a week and keeps up his duties? Yes, okay. Insurance. Have we ever met people that didn't believe that our church was an apostolic New Testament church because we believed in insurance? Yes, we have. It's ridiculous. They claim that insurance means that you don't have faith in God. God expects us to use the means that He gives us for protecting ourselves. And I've, I've already been over that, I believe. Remember in the book of Proverbs, it, tell, it gives us the coney for some wisdom. What is the wisdom of the coney? He makes his house in the rocks. For why? For his protection. Because he doesn't have the protection of the lion. He doesn't have the protection of the greyhound. He doesn't have the protection of the he-goat. Remember? So he hides himself by foreseeing the evil and protecting himself. We live in a time when insurance is so cheap so incredibly cheap to have insurance. You're thinking, well, I don't think medical insurance is very cheap anymore. Well, it's not as cheap as it used to be, but I'm talking about all kinds of insurance. Spreading it over a large group of people makes it very affordable, and we get to protect ourselves and not be those guilty of taking on suretyship or other contingent liabilities as the book of Proverbs condemns. Much more could be said on that subject. It almost deserves a whole sermon about the real trusting the Lord. The Lord expects us to use the means He's given us to protect ourselves. And He's given us such cheap means to have insurance. The church is not a general insurance fund for those neglectful, foolish, impulsive, covetous, and greedy which don't have their own insurance. That's the only reasons why you don't have it. It's too affordable. It's too easy to have insurance. 
The internet, it's a liberty, but wise men will use it wisely, for there is infinite filth at your fingertips. You all know that. Never before in the history of the world can the whole world come into your house, audio, visual, video, any form you want it stored, kept, enhanced, on, on and on I could go. But I've done that already in technological sins, techno, techno sins. And the technological advances of our society that bring sin right into our homes, pockets, and purses. Comparable to television and movies, the invention itself is not sin, but its abuse is easily sin. Lord, help us. I do consider techno sins to be one of the great threats to our souls and our families and our church. Huge threat. Interracial marriage. Some of you that are carrying, please hear me out. Interracial marriage. Does it evoke strong opinions? What if a white man named Moses married an Ethiopian woman? Could you handle it? Would you, would you commune with him? Would you commune with her? Can you think of a couple good Christians that couldn't? Do you remember their names? Aaron and Miriam. What did God think of their opinion? He gave Miriam leprosy. And she was put out of the camp for seven days because of her disrespect of Moses over the matter. If you believe that God has made some divisions in the human family, you know He still allows some crossovers, doesn't He? Like Moses and the Ethiopian. He still allows some crossovers like polygamy, doesn't he? Did God make one woman for each man? Absolutely he did. Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 15 tells us that he had the residue of the Spirit. He had the Spirit that he had pulled some out of and made a woman. And it says he had the residue of the Spirit sitting there in his hand. And he looked at Adam and how many should Adam have? And he made one. And he withheld the residue of the Spirit. It says that in Malachi 2.15. And so every man should have one wife. But you know, God allowed polygamy. Polygamy was not adultery. Polygamy is not adultery. As long as you keep up certain basic duties toward each wife. It's an it's a illegal in our nation. So it's a sin for us. And it's not a matter of liberty. But if it wasn't illegal in our nation, it would be a liberty for anyone that wasn't a bishop or a deacon. Just like it was through the pages of Scripture. I just use that as an example. Somebody will say to me, well, I don't really mind white oriental marriages, but white black really bother me. Hello? What book of the Bible are you referring to? Do you understand how personal that is? How cultural that is? That it's not biblical. But they'll say things like that to me. How can you make a judgment like that? Who do you think you are? If that's what you believe then we're waiting to see all your children married to Orientals. But don't you fault someone else that does white and black marriages. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Turn to Acts chapter 13. This this gets people hot under the collar and it's hard to preach it, but not very hard. The Bible doesn't address something and make it plain with a tsunami of evidence. We allow it as a liberty. We've had interracial marriages in this church before, and we'll have them again, especially in a society like ours. 
Acts chapter 13, if you were a member at Paul's church, would you let your daughter marry Simeon? Okay, Acts 13, verse 1, let me read to you what it says. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger. And Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. Would you let your daughter marry this minister of the gospel named Simeon? But he was also called Niger because what color was he? He was a black man. What do you think Nigeria means? What do you think that word comes from? Can you look at that word and see other words that have been used from it? Will interracial marriages have more difficulty than those that are not interracial? Most likely. So be cautious and wise and prudent and consider those things in advance. It's pretty hard to keep this a matter of liberty private, so you better think through any offense that it might create since it's going to be very visible. Regardless of what is politically correct, socially correct, culturally correct, a sincere pastor will defend both sides. I've heard the explanation given by a father of that has daughters. You know, let the best man win. That's a good attitude. You know, if you've got a Simeon, he may be the best man available. He may be an outstanding... I would say he is an outstanding Christian because of his inclusion in Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. You know, any of... I'm moving on. This isn't a sermon about interracial marriages. It's just to remind you that it's considered a matter of liberty. I want to jump back to diet for just a moment. Um, You know, the Bible doesn't say anything about what's healthy eating and what isn't. It just doesn't say anything. It mentions all kinds of things that you can go online now and find out that they're just terrible for your health. You know, red meat and honey and... You know, just it just goes on and on. Milk and cheese and all those rich fat foods, uh, which the Bible praises and commends as good things, but it doesn't give a diet. You know, in the dietary laws that the Bible does give, the New Testament completely blows away and right. says that Jesus nailed them all to the cross. You know, the Jews couldn't have bacon for breakfast, and they couldn't have pepperoni pizza for supper. They couldn't have a ham sandwich for lunch, but we can have all three and do it every day. And it's just part of God's mercy to us. I just want to remind you that whenever you're thinking about diet, that our favorite verse from Romans 14 on this subject is this. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. And you know, they had real issues with real meat and drink issues. You don't. So the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. What about coarse language? God condemns swearing... Filthy speech, foolish talking, and jesting. But coarse words used as nouns, not used as expletives to swear, are scriptural. Piss and dung are used in the Bible the same way that we use certain words that start with C and S today. And as long as you're using them as nouns, you haven't done anything wrong at all. All you're doing is sounding like the Holy Spirit. And don't be offended by me saying that. You're a Pharisee if you don't understand that. You know, the Pharisees wanted to wash their hands and they want to wash your mouth out with soap if you say certain words that are simply used as nouns. But the Bible uses them. 
We hate unscriptural swearing, filthy speech that mocks sin or makes light of sexual activity that belongs only between parents. But to talk about sexual activity in a plain way, in the right setting, there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible's able to do it. Foolish talking and jesting. This is Ephesians 5, verses 3 through 5. Intense men usually have an intense vocabulary. But again, we want to be void of offense. Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, including the words that come out of your mouth, we want them to be good words, uplifting words, and edifying words for the audience that we're with. So remember all those things. I have to keep moving on. You know, I've preached on speech before. A lawyer career. Are there Christians that don't think a Christian can be a lawyer? Can a Christian be a lawyer since they make deals and do their best to protect criminals? There are many different career options in the legal field, so a blanket rejection is foolish. In criminal cases, defending a criminal, the foundation of our system assumes innocence. And we're part of a system where we provide public defenders or you're allowed to hire private defenders to defend you even though you're guilty. And you know what? There may be a time where you're going to be thankful for that provision in our law that you're presumed innocent until proven guilty. Moving on. Makeup. Some think makeup violates modesty. Others think basic makeup helps paint the barn. I, I remember Dr. Bob Jones Sr. I mean, he was an old-fashioned man. Old-fashioned country man. And his words about makeup were, if the barn needs painting, paint it. Makeup can be used in a way not to draw attention foolishly or wickedly to a woman. It can be used that way. Makeup can also be used to look like you're Jezebel. Because the only woman in the Bible that we're specifically told about using makeup was Jezebel. She painted her face. You can go read it in 2 Kings chapter 9 and verse 30. Makeup needs to be modest. What does that mean? It means it's not suggestive. It's not seductive, it's not ostentatious, it's not obvious, and it's not showy. If your makeup is suggestive, or seductive, or ostentatious, or obvious or showy, it's immodest and it's wrong. Who are you dressing for? Who are you painting your face for? You should be dressing and painting your face for God. And your husband, a little bit. Be careful. Be modest. Godly women will learn, Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 through 24, carefully as to God's opinion of all the accessories, tools, and things they do to add to their physical appearance. That was Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. Let me say that again. Every godly woman will learn Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 through 24, and its extensive list of accessories, tools, devices, and attachments, and clothing, and walking methods that women use to draw attention to themselves, and get to the end of the passage where you can find out what God's going to do to such women, and it involves your private parts. Is makeup a matter of liberty, Pastor? It is. I just told you how to exercise it. You know, a woman can use gentle earth tone makeup and just make herself look like she's awake. 
instead of having just crawled out of bed. Or she can paint herself so that she looks like a slut. We don't need three-inch long eyelashes in order to commune. Why are you doing that? Who are you dressing for? More, more on this is coming. You want to hear this one? We're in the M's. Are you ready? Marijuana. It's presently a crime to have, use, or sell marijuana, so it is not a Christian liberty. Period. If it were legalized, there is nothing in the Bible to condemn moderate use of it. Now just think about what's going on inside of you, because see, it goes on inside of me too. But how do you condemn it with the Bible? Because it's marijuana! Hello? That's an English word. Can I call it something else, like weed? Can I call it pot to get it real short so that you can spell it? Now I just want you to think about it. I know it just grinds me. Just It just tears me up. But I'm going to preach the whole counsel of God to you. How would you prove it wrong? I can prove your coffee and chocolate as wrong as you can prove marijuana. I'll bring arguments to bear against your coffee bean and your cocoa beans and what they were used for. But see, you've come, you've come to accept that. Not a single one of us should get near marijuana. It's illegal. God does authorize mood-altering chemicals in the Bible in Proverbs chapter one, verses six and seven. Proverbs chapter thirty-one, verses six and seven. You know, I guess we can just be thankful that the government's made it illegal, like he's made polygamy illegal. I know that some of you women were kind of surprised to think of somebody coming in and taking up the back two rows with four wives and 16 children, four by each woman. But you know what? They'd never be in the ministry even as a deacon because they're not following God's ideal, but they're doing something that God did allow in His mercy toward men due to the hardness of their hearts. Not because it was almost His will. His will was one man, one woman. For life. You say, well, what's moderate use? Will we be able to tell by your actions? Just like we do with alcohol. Marriage. The Bible doesn't compel anyone to marry. But the Bible has compelling reasons not to marry. So it's a matter of liberty. Elijah, John, Anna, Jesus, and Paul were among others that chose not to marry for it's a liberty. Some men do make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, and they have the freedom to do that. If an eligible man or woman chose to live a single life to be like the Apostle Paul and to fulfill 1 Corinthians 7, would you love him or her anyway? Marriage is a liberty, but marrying in the Lord is not a liberty at all. We have to marry in the Lord because the Bible says so. You know, I'm so nervous that some of you will get will be all upset about me having mentioned that, that M word that came before marriage. Do you know how many roots and herbs and different things that our fathers have eaten and used, put on their skin, under their tongue, up their nose, in their mouth, ingested it, in the other end, enemas, all kinds of things. You know, we get conditioned and I hate conditioning, unless it's conditioning to God's Word. Right. We get conditioned to put this thing, that goes over there, 
That is of the devil. Show me the verses. That picture of Jesus, if I were to pull it up right now, that many of you have grown up with, and I had painted it on a dartboard, how many of you would think I was sacrilegious? The picture of Jesus that you all grew up with, the long-haired man standing knocking at the door. If I handed you three darts and set that dartboard up, could you throw three darts at it? I'm, I'm not... I'm just asking. I've had to work on this myself. Even though I hate that picture, I believe as much as anyone in this assembly. But I grew up and spent so much time around that picture. And I remember asking my father once in front of my family if he could, and he and I were about alike on the matter. But when I asked my mother, she was not like either of us. <laughs> she asked me for the darts. It just... It was precious. It was one of the precious moments with my dear mother. Where are they? I'm doing that, and I'm talking about that, because I want you to think about how powerful conditioning is. I have mentioned Mary before, because you're conditioned to think and see Mary in a certain way, with a little serene smile on her face, her hands folded like this, a halo over her head, She's perfectly made up. There's no dirt. There's no mess. There's no fuss. And it looks like she's in constant prayer. The Mary in the Bible never looked like that ever, not even for one second. Right. Right. But you have a conditioned idea of what Mary should be. And I want you to, I want you to hate conditioning unless it's this conditioning right. to right here so that when we hear a subject, we think of Bible verses. Amen. It is written. It is written. It is written. And if it's not written, it's liberty. The Messiah. Handel's Messiah. It's a matter of liberty. Some of us, having been raised on this instrumental vocal music, think that it's probably what they're going to play in heaven. It's a matter of liberty. John Newton and our fathers in the faith would not have attended the Messiah. Because the Messiah was performed in places that Christians never went to. John Newton considered it a distraction to the Word of God. And you know what? It's got some truth to it. I've heard the Messiah a million times, but I still want the words in front of my eyes when I hear it so I can figure out what they're saying. And remember, I'm making fun of what I think is uh, about the most God-glorifying, Christ-glorifying piece of instrumental choral music I've ever heard in my life. If I hear the Hallelujah Chorus loud enough, I just want the Lord to come right then. If I hear Worthy is the Lamb loud enough, I just want to fall on my face and worship the Lamb. But I want to be honest with you, brethren, part of that's conditioning. I'm not, I'm just saying that the, the Messiah is a matter of liberty. I hope no one in this church thinks that because I tell you when it's available that I'm pushing it on anyone. It's one of the few outside entertainments that we can enjoy. I hope that we can enjoy it in a way that pleases the Lord. We would never have a performance of it in the church of God. Modesty. Now give me until break time. Modesty is not a liberty, and modesty is a liberty. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2. 
due to our degenerate society and carnal Christianity all around us, we need constant reminders on this subject. As a Bible commandment, it's not at all a liberty. How we apply it becomes a liberty. Child discipline is not a liberty. Using the rod is not a liberty. You do not have liberty to try to raise children without using the rod. The rod is a commandment of the Holy Scriptures. Modesty is a commandment, but how we apply it varies. 1 Timothy chapter 2, we've been in this chapter quite a bit in recent years because of the first three verses teaching us submission, thanksgiving, and supplication for our civil rulers. And we've seen the importance of that, and it has changed our lives. But verses 9 and 10 are about women and their clothing and other aspects of their appearance. 1 Timothy 2.9, in like manner. It's just mentioned holy men in verse 8. It's mentioned preachers in the verses before that. In like manner also, there is something that women need to do. That men have to be doing things in these other verses. This is for you women. In like manner also, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. That's what you put on. Here's the attitude and actions of wearing it. With shamefacedness and sobriety. Not with broided hair, or gold, or pearls, or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Women that claim to be Christians will adorn themselves first and foremost with good works. Women that call themselves Christians will adorn themselves first and foremost with good works. When they have to get dressed every day of the week and in the Lord's house, they will put on modest apparel. Modest apparel is apparel that is not suggestive. It's not seductive. It's not ostentatious. It doesn't draw attention to yourself. It's not showy. It's modest. I've given you the words for the definition of modesty so that you can understand what it's saying. That women adorn themselves in modest apparel. You will put on things that are not suggestive, do not draw attention to you, are not showy, are not seductive, but they're modest. And then you will conduct yourself in a shame-faced way. You will be reserved, held back, meek, reticent, not loud, not argumentative, not even questioning, with shamefacedness and sobriety. You'll be grave. You'll be sober. You'll be careful. You will not emphasize broided hair. That's doing anything with your hair to try to draw attention to yourself by your hair. Or with gold. Or with pearls. Or with costly clothing. Now by comparing this passage to 1 Peter chapter 3, we understand that a woman may wear nice apparel. That a woman may have a piece of gold on. I don't know very many yet that have said you've got to get rid of your wedding rings. Which have stones and gold. But they put their good works first. They're more concerned about praying for the house of God than dressing for the house of God 
And I'd like to ask every woman to consider that because the Lord's going to ask you about that when you meet Him. How much time did you spend in the mirror? How much time did you spend picking out your clothes versus how much time you spent praying for the church services? How much time did you spend making sure that there is a long litany of good works attached to your name in the sight of God and the sight of all good men and women? Modesty. You know, it's not a liberty here because there it's taught. But this is like child training. It's taught. But then how and when do we apply it? And I want to help you a little bit right now. Like television or alcohol, it is a liberty that must be carefully managed or it becomes sin. We rightly contend in this church for the apostolic faith against perilous times. But women, do you know how you can righteously contend for the faith against perilous times? Dress different from this culture. As this culture degenerates and takes off more and more clothing and accentuates the body's curves and the body's seductiveness of women more and more, you are going to look more different. We cannot follow the world and just be one step behind them. We hear about martyrs every Lord's Day like we did today. But you women, sometimes you give me the impression you can't even sacrifice immodest clothes. There were men who sacrificed their lives. And you can't put a dress back in the closet and say, I'm never going to wear that again? You say, well, I spent $19 on it. Well, I'll give you $29 for it if you'll bring it to me and let me burn it in front of you. Why can't you give up something like that? Why can't you cheerfully do it? Those men sang and thanked God for the privilege of being able to burn the stake. And you can't thank God for the privilege of burning some of your garments? I'm not mad at anyone. I'm mad at our society and culture that's around us. Modesty condemns anything that is suggestive, seductive, ostentatious, showy, and that includes attire, the clothes you put on, that includes your accessories, and that includes your hair. Because that's mentioned right here. Right. And you know, if you want all the details, if you want to know that women 3,000 years ago knew more about beauty than you do, then go read. It's that passage. It's Isaiah chapter 3, verses 16 through 24. The purity of your motives. And we have some wonderful women in this church. We have some wonderful young women in this church. The purity of your motives. And for the most part... I believe that your motives are pure. Your intention is not to be suggestive or seductive. But the purity of your motives and your ignorance about your clothing, your makeup, your accessories, and your hair does not clear or cancel the effect of your attire or manners. It doesn't matter that you have pure motives. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you're ignorant and you didn't know that men thought those kind of things that I would love to tell you, and I'm trying to restrain myself, and I've begged God to help restrain me. It doesn't matter that you're ignorant of that, because God's going to hold you accountable for what the men around you thought. Yep. See, it's not really our lust as much as, as it is our disgust that you can't be a Christian woman. 
as carefully as you could be. Most of you do a great job. Men must guard their eyes and thoughts, and I'll tell you that, and I teach them that, and that's taught at men's meetings, but women must help. Job said in Job 31, I have made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? But in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 20, it says an adulterous woman commits adultery, wipes her mouth with a, na- with a napkin, and says, I haven't done anything wrong. Wanting to blame the men. You know, any woman that even has the least little thought rising up in her, it's the man's fault. No, it isn't. It's your fault. Does this passage here say anything about the men looking the way they look at you? Does this passage here say anything about the men? Then why are you thinking about the men? Because you are an arrogant, rebellious biddy. Grow up. Humble yourself to the Word of God. This Bible tells you it is your clothes, it is your accessories, it is your hair that's to be done in a certain way. And you are to be known for your good works and not for physical attractiveness, not for dressing well. We want women that are servants of the church and servants of Christ. Your immodest attire, your immodest makeup, your immodest hair, your immodest accessories, wound consciences at least as much as there were any consciences wounded in Rome or Corinth over meat offered to an idol or the forbidden meats of the Old Testament. I would like the women to look at Romans chapter 14 and verse 13 with me. Most of you do a good job. Those of you that don't do as good of a job as you could, I don't believe that your intentions are malicious. I believe that you're ignorant. I believe that you've slipped. And I believe that the influence of our society around you and even all the Christians in this so-called Christian city on the Bible Belt have influenced you. And so we have to, we have to regularly remind ourselves to pull back and be holy. The clothes that you wear now are so different from your grandmother's. And that doesn't mean that grandmother's clothing was perfect in either direction, but it means we can't just follow the world. Look at Romans 14, 13. We're going to stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in Romans 10, in verses 10 through 12 and give an account of our lives. Verse 13 says, Let us not therefore judge one another anymore. You women shouldn't be judging men and blaming it on us. Yes, God made us to be turned on visually. So you need to help protect us. Because it says this, but judge this rather. This is what you ought to be doing, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Don't put a stumbling block in front of us. Don't give us an occasion to fall. And what is that fall? It's not falling outwardly. It's falling inwardly by looking at you and thinking thoughts that we shouldn't be thinking. Just like those Jews. They didn't want to see it. They didn't want to think about it. Because their conscience would be hurt. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for a cross-reference to this that verse in Romans 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Be a lover of your brother's consciences and help your consciences. And this comes second after God's requirement for you to be attired in modest apparel. That was God's order. So it's not a liberty. But how do you apply that liberty given all the options that we have today? And I'm trying to help you right now, and I'm going to help you more specifically in just a moment. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, Take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours 
become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Most or all men are weak visually because God made us that way, so you have to help protect us. I'm not putting all the burden on you. There's burden on the men as well. But to come into the house of God and to have you only partially dressed in certain ways hurts us. It's a stumbling block to us. I wish you cared about us. I wish you knew what it was like to have pain in your conscience because you're trying to worship God and you're seeing things that make your mind go in different directions than the worship of God. And all the men know what I'm talking about. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? Aren't we going to cause men's consciences to go places that they shouldn't if we don't take care of their sight? If any man see thee. Verse 11, And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin, ye sin. Notice it's him sinning, but you're the fault of his sin. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. You women, when you're not careful enough dressing and putting on your makeup and doing your hair and putting on your accessories, when you're not careful enough as you should be about that, you're sinning against Christ because you're wounding our weak consciences in the matter. I want you to think about our consciences. I don't want you to think about any standard of modesty except the consciences of men. I want you to think about their consciences because that's what you should be doing in a matter of liberty like this. Women should recall what I've just the verses I've just given you to think about the conscience and the trouble and the pain that you cause men by the little indiscretions that you have in your dress. Now let's make this point very clear. Whose conscience counts? Women, we couldn't care less about your conscience. Your conscience has nothing to do with this subject. This is a very unique matter of liberty. You know, when you drink alcohol at home, because you're supposed to have your liberty at home, it's at home. And it's your conscience that's involved. How much can I have and not be foolish? It's your conscience. But see, modesty is when you're wearing clothes in public. You can't have it in private. You can't have it to yourself before God. I'm going to get to modesty at home in a moment because you're in church. So it's in front of our consciences. It's not your conscience. Your conscience is totally irrelevant. I'm telling you, the consensus male conscience right now from God's Word and then from all the men that care the most about your holiness because I'm representing them. I'm doing their dirty work. Whose conscience counts? Is it her husband's conscience? Not a chance. No way at all. Your husband doesn't look at you the way that other men look at you. Are you kidding? You know why we have, my wife and I have had to put up with the ridiculous excuse, well, my husband said it's okay. We don't care what your husband said. He's a retard. When it comes to looking at you, he doesn't look at you the same way other men look at you. Do you know why? Because sin is sin, and sin says the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Sin is sin, and all the trees of the Garden of Eden don't work because there's one tree that's forbidden, and all of a sudden that tree looks better than all the rest. It's sin. 
I'm not making anything less than sin. But your husband's conscience doesn't work. Let me talk a little bit more about your husband. You know, when you come, when you come out of the bedroom or the bathroom and you're wearing something and a little thought goes through his mind, see, he's afraid to tell you. Because he remembers the last time he tried to tell you the way you tossed your head and the way you humph and went and slammed the closet door. Well, I guess I just gotta look like an Amish. Nobody said you have to look like an Amish. Why would you say that, you wicked, rebellious woman? I want all the men in here to grow up and be studs. If you can't tell her she can't, and if you can't enforce it, you're effeminate. So get tough. But women, I'm trying to help you right now. Your husband doesn't look at you the way other men look at you, and your husband's afraid to to, uh, disrupt domestic tranquility, is what it's called, by constantly criticizing you and trying to point out things to you that you should have figured out by now with all the effort that we've tried to make to educate you. You know, he says, listen, you just look too, it's too seductive from behind. That skirt is cupping your buttocks and that skirt is clinging to your hips. That straight skirt won't cut it. Go put it off. Who cares what I look like from behind? I look in the mirror and I look fine. Well, you're going to stand in front of somebody that's going to be singing all people that on earth do dwell. And his poor mind is going to be seeing those cupped buttocks of yours. And there's lots of butt men in the world. And that's what they're called. They like a woman's bottom. You say, Pastor, I thought it was going to be easy today and we could just all laugh. I wish we could all laugh. But when I come to this modesty issue, and I have men coming and telling me things, and I get to see things with my own eyes, I just want to warn everyone again. A woman's modesty is primarily in the eyes of male beholders, and we will trust their judgment about whether you're modest or not until they get to an extreme that we can condemn, and then we will go confront them that they are idiots. Okay, is that fair? Yep. It's not your husband. Don't tell my wife for me again. My husband approved this. I don't care what your husband said. You say, well, he's my Lord. He's an ignorant Lord. I'm telling you right now that this is public modesty. Your husband doesn't look at you the same. You say, well, he should. Why don't you preach on husbands looking at me like they look at me? I can't undo their sin nature. And I do warn them. And I do exhort them. Have you ever read the proverb commentaries? Let her breast satisfy thee at all times. Has your pastor in this church ever talked about anything like that, man? If you love peace and joy, women, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It is modesty, not broided hair, not costly array. It is those things. If you love peace and joy, I want to show you in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7 how you ought to treat us. 1 Corinthians 6, 7. If you love peace and joy, you will allow men's eyes to defraud you of fashionable clothing. The first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 6 are a problem at Corinth. They had little offenses taking place among them, and they were going to court over those little offenses. They were not offenses against God. They were offenses among men. And do you know what the solution was for the Apostle Paul? Verse 7. 
he, he's just upset that they would even think about going to court when the church should be able to decide all these little things. It's called the smallest matters up there in verse 2. These are little tiny things that, that, men, that happen between men, and they should be settled in the church. But now these Corinthians were going to court. Verse 7, Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you. There is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Obviously there were, there were offenses occurring between men, but they were going to law. Why do ye not rather take wrong? You know, if somebody messed up your jigsaw or if somebody put a little ding in your car, why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Why don't you suffer yourselves to be defrauded for the sake of a brother? These things aren't worth it. This is the Apostle Paul's solution to the things that we do against each other. And so I'm asking you women, if you love joy and peace, and if you really want to practice Romans 14, 17, then... Wouldn't you be willing to defraud yourself of some of the things you like to wear for the sake of your brothers who come after God, who is, who is expecting you not to wound our consciences? Thank you, Lord, for that point from 1 Corinthians 6-7, that a godly woman shouldn't mind giving up some of the things that she wears in order to be more modest. Instead of fussing about new and creative outfits and thinking you need to go shopping for more, why don't you wear the same thing repeatedly if it's modest? Do you think we wear a new suit every Sunday? Why do women have to be so different? My dear sisters, I hope you will think about this subject, that you'll repent, that you'll cultivate a sensitive conscience, that you'll hate the world's trends, and that you'll take a stand for godliness. Let every woman humble herself before God and her pastor and be a virtuous woman. Fathers and husbands, you are feminine if you cannot teach, warn, and enforce modesty coming out of your home. I'm going to use Al Martin for his ten magnets. His ten eye magnets, okay? You say, well, it sounds like you're wimping out. Yep, I am a little bit. Remember, I sent you a link by a Baptist preacher out of New Jersey, Al Martin, on modesty a couple years ago. He did an excellent job. Why reinvent the wheel? Al Martin said there are ten magnets. So see, it's, it's not your pastor, and it's not the men sitting around you, it's Al Martin. Let's blame him. But I want to tell you something right now. As face answereth to face in water, so the heart of man to man. Right. We're all the same. Mm-hmm. The ten magnets... Slits in skirts was his number one magnet. If you have a slit that comes above your knee, it is inappropriate. We don't need to see your flashing legs. And I'm trusting God right now by saying that, that he will allow slits below the knee. Because any flashing leg to a man is a flashing neon sign. Why are the slits there? There's two reasons why they're there. The first reason is your skirt is too tight and you couldn't walk without it. The second reason it is there, because the designers in our country are trying to draw the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh to women's apparel. Slits in your skirts. Butt-hugging skirts. There are some holy women in our church. But there are some holy women in our church 
that think because they put on a long skirt, they are modest, and they are Sunday after Sunday the most immodest women in our church. Because the skirt cups, hugs, and shows the shape of their bottom. You hate us. You hate God by your actions. You know, modesty is a matter of the heart more than a matter of the hemline, but the hemline is ruled by God and by men. And I'm helping you rule it right now. A long skirt is absolutely no evidence of modesty. It's how loose is it around your hips and bottom. To stand behind such a woman that has a shapely body and be singing all people that on earth do dwell and see a long skirt cupping her hips and her buttocks is an impossible task. You say, well, you sound like a pervert. Do you want me to have all the men in this church that agree with me stand up? You say, well, you ought to be like a Joseph. How many Josephs are there in the Bible? One. How many Davids and Samsons are there in the Bible? The rest of the men. Number three, breast-hugging blouses or shirts. When you wear a blouse or a shirt that shows the size or the shape of your breast, it's too tight. It should drape over your breasts, not pronounce them. Now you know every woman should know her ABCs. And every woman that has a worse grade by going down that scale, I mean, by, by, uh, by going up that scale, has to take more care. You say, do you mean that I have to take more care because God made me different than other women? Is the Pope a Catholic? Have I missed something in talking to you? Have you missed something in your elementary education? If God made you different, you have to be different in how you dress. Your blouses and your shirts and sweaters should be very carefully designed not to draw attention to your breasts. There are breast men. We're turned on by breasts. Why do you think it says in Proverbs 5.19, let her breasts satisfy thee at all times? Because it's a commandment. Why is it a commandment? Because it's not the natural or, it's not the natural or ordinary thought of men to limit themselves to their wives. But God commands us to. Will you help us? Especially in the house of God. That was number three. Number four, unbuttoned blouses or low-lying blouses for a low neckline to expose cleavage or almost cleavage or your clavicles that are unnecessary to be seen. Can you see my clavicles? Can you see the clavicles of any man in here? Why do we always cover our clavicles, but you women don't? You know, I'm developing cleavage in my older age. Can, can you see mine? Do you know how many clothes the men on in here have? Do you know how hot we get? Do you know that I have a t-shirt up to here? It's choking me. I've got this cotton shirt on up to here. I've got this string drawn around its neck so that it won't dare fall loose and show my cleavage. Then I've got this coat on. It's insane. Look at what men wear. And you want to complain because I'm asking you to cover your clavicles and to cover your chest and to cover your cleavage. You know, you say, well, I looked in the mirror. And I couldn't see any cleavage. Yes, but when you bent over to get your hymnal off the carpet and someone else looked, they saw everything you have. Well, I didn't think about that. 
That's why I'm dealing with this. Because that's the problem. There's not enough thought that goes into it. Please put more thought into it. We have low, we have necklines in here sometimes that are too low. Sleeveless blouses with large armholes. Anyone from the side can see your bra and what your bra holds. All of you women, when a man sees something like that, he just wants to know more. He wants to see more. He wants to touch more. That's the way that we're made. That doesn't excuse us or justify us. But right now I'm dealing with you. Will you help us by not wearing such things? You know, if you worked in a real office, you wouldn't be allowed to wear those things either. It is amazing what we have asked this church to wear that conservative businesses require the same kind of clothing, shoe attire, and everything at conservative companies. I would love to see some of you women try to get into a real office and function in your ankle-strapped, open-toed shoes that have a four-inch heel on the back and your sleeveless blouses. They would throw you right out and tell you to go home and get dressed including Victoria's Secrets. They won't let you wear that kind of junk. That's garbage clothing. That's pajamas. That's what women who dance with poles wear on their feet. A closed-toe pump is required by many conservative companies for women to wear in an office setting. Low-rise skirts or pants. Why and where in the world did they invent such a thing? To show off a woman's stomach or the crack of her bottom. See-through clothing of any time, any type. Any gauze-type clothing that you can see through is unacceptable. We don't want to see your underwear of any kind. We don't want to see any strap. I don't want any man in this church or visitor to this church to stand singing the 100th Psalm, All People That On Earth Do Dwell. I'm using that as my favorite right now. And looking at the back of you, because you wore one of these gauzy type blouses that are the rage, and have been the rage for the last 40 years, and they can see the strap of your bra. And all a man thinks about when he sees that is, I'd like to undo that and see what it's holding. And I'm not a pervert. I am preaching to you what Al Martin preaches. We can't handle that. Help us. You say, well, that's just pitiful. Well, that's because you're a woman. God made us different. You know, if we were just like you, it would still be Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden admiring the flowers. Help us. Skirts too short. You know, your skirts had better come down over your knees and cover your thighs completely. You shouldn't have to do some shimmy in your pulpit, to, in, in your pew, to get your skirt long enough to get it out to your knee. Then you cross your legs and we can see two-thirds of your thigh. Wear your skirt long enough so that you don't have to do such a shimmy. And when you cross your legs, it is still over your knee and covers all of your thigh. Any pants that hug the thighs, buttocks, or crotch. Now, I know that pants are comfortable to you women. And it's a rage in our country to wear all kinds of pants, to wear tight jeans, to wear spandex, to wear pants that have spandex in them, to wear jeans that have spandex in them, to show off three things. The shape of your thighs, buttocks, and crotch. That's why they're made that way. It's too much. And a bare midriff or back. All those things are wrong. Those are his ten eye magnets. You should think about your backside when you're dressing and be very careful. A man standing behind you in the church of God should not see anything 
but the back of your hair, clothing completely covering you with no underwear showing, no, no, no uh, snaps, no clasps, no straps. You should bend over from the front and rear and see what shows. You know, I can bend over right now and pick up something off the floor and you can't see very far, can you? You can't. He said, does that mean we have to wear something all the way up to our Adam's apple? Well, why don't you get closer to it? When you're dressing too modestly, I'll, I'll preach a different type of a sermon, okay? It's very hard for men or women to criticize another man's wife due to fear of lust or jealousy. Do you know how hard it is in, in here for a man to go to another man and say, your wife dresses immodestly? Because for him to do that, that man or his wife or both of them will think he's a pervert or has a lust problem when he's just perfectly normal and you're the one that's causing the problem. When the wife goes and does it for him, then the wife or the husband or both of them think that she's jealous. What wickedness boils in the hearts of some women. I'm not accusing anyone here. I'm just asking you to examine yourselves and make sure that it's not there with you and remember how hard it is. So I am doing all their dirty work right now. I am asking every woman in here to be more careful, and especially you women that have shapely bodies and like to wear your long skirts and show us you're well-shaped behind. We don't want to see it anymore. You're married to one of our brothers. That behind's for him. We don't want to think about it or see it. Why are you so foolish to think that a long skirt is modest? Girls and women, I hope that you'll be submissive to the exhortation of others in the church and never bristle at it. We're just trying to help you. Women, when you dress, whose attention do you desire? Whose approval do you crave? You're going to answer for it when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to desire the attention of the Lord Jesus Christ and His approval more than anyone else's. And then all of your brothers when you're in a public place like this. It is not to be eye candy for your husband. You can be eye candy at home when it's only his eyes. You should never, ever want to be eye candy for your husband in front of other men. You should only want to be eye candy for your husband at home. What statement are we making in our church, and is it good enough, is it strong enough, against this blasphemous culture by the appearance of our women? Most of you women do very well. I'm thankful. We have tried, when I say we, my wife and I have tried to avoid any manual of clothing. We have had several sessions with this church over the decades, very uncomfortable for us, to remind you of some basics like I just did. We are not trying to look like the Amish or the Mennonites, but we don't want to look like the world either. We want to look like 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 3. We want to avoid Isaiah chapter 3. We want to avoid Proverbs chapter 7. We want you to look godly and holy and virtuous and modest and shamefaced and sober. This is God's commandment. I've tried to give you a few things to think about in order to apply it correctly. May God bless the preaching of his word. If you want to hear more, you can go online and just type in Al Martin Modesty. And it'll pop up and you can listen to it again. 
This outline will be available the next day or two, and you can see the few things that I've written down about it. You were once shown some modesty comparisons, a little modesty handbook that was prepared for you, and there are some women that like to press the edge of the envelope. They're rebellious. They don't want to listen to the rules. They think that they know better. But those rules were made with a great deal of thought, prayer, and concern that they not go overboard, but that they protect the consciences of the men of this church and that they glorify God. Let's not follow the world just a few steps behind it. Let's be modest. It is a matter of liberty. It is not a matter of liberty. I hope I've made it plain enough, and I hope that I've been helpful to the church. Amen.